Welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be looking at Pulp Cthulhu, what it means to be pulp, and what it means to be not pulp. But before we launch into all that and our main topic, what, what's going on in the world? Well, I've been seeing lots of people getting their 7th edition Call of Cthulhu online on social media and putting up pictures, which is nice to see. Yeah, there have been lots and lots of unboxing videos on YouTube. And my poor shelves are bending it again under the weight of, um, the, weight of the package that finally turned up. <laughs> In conjunction with that, I've been working on a new video to cover 7th edition character creation. But at the moment, it's kind of stuck in limbo because I'm having trouble with iMovie, uh, which just says rendering error number 50. And look online in vain, lots of cures, but none of them seem to work. So I think I'm just going to have to, I don't know, start the whole thing from scratch or something. But hopefully soon after this comes out, I'll have uh, a video out, if not, you know, already. That's your problem using fruit-based technology, the bloody thing. It doesn't be. usually let me down, but in this is instance, it is a problem. There's also a very rare in um, occurrence that's happened over the course of the last couple of weeks. There's rumours that Paul's been seen behind the GM screen again. Yeah, yeah, he's he's been running a playtest of uh, his his next chapter, the Poison Tree, uh, for well, for both of us and a few other players, and it's it's really been rather fun so far. Oh, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. It's uh, it's kind of 1870s America, set in the Dakota Territory. Um, yes, hunting monsters. Yeah, well, so you had me at Wild West. <laughs> And also, if you're somewhere in the north of England, or maybe even the south of Scotland, and you fancy meeting us, we are due to be doing a book signing at um, Travelling Man in Newcastle on the 10th of July, uh, to coincide with the launch of Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. Now, all of this is obviously uh, dependent on the books actually getting to them first. It looks likely at the moment, but uh, you just never know with these things. So, if you are planning on coming along, do check closer to the time, uh, check social media, check the Travelling Man website, and make sure it hasn't been delayed. Yeah, we're talking real north of England here, north of north. We're heading up in Matt's Batmobile, <laughs> early Saturday morning. Oh, God, really early. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Considering I, I did the trip recently in the same car up to Edinburgh, and that took, on, on the route there, eight and a half hours. So, I'm hoping we can do it in about five or six to it's get not to far, It's not that far short of Edinburgh, so... Yeah. A good couple of hours. Okay. Before we jump into our look at Pop Cthulhu, though, it's time for our Lovecraftian word of the... Week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word is accursed. An adjective? Under or subject to a curse? Doomed. Can't help but trying to do a dad's army impression every time <laughs> I see the word doomed. Or two. Hateful, detestable, execrable. And like so many of the Lovecraftian words we've looked at so far, this is one that seems to be rooted in hate and disgust. <laughs> We really do like pulp honest guys. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, don't blame us, blame Lovecraft. Yeah, I mean this is half his vocabulary. 
Give Lovecraft the credit, you mean, Scott? <laughs> yes, yes, of course. That's what I mean. And, yeah, this really was one of his favourite words. I mean, we've, we've looked at other words before which we think of as being very Lovecraftian, which he used, you know, two or three times. Mm. This one he used 74 times in his fiction. Remarkable. And bizarrely, I, there is an archaic version of Accursed, uh, which is accursed with a T instead of an ED. And with Lovecraft's love of using archaic versions of words, he used the modern one. That's like, unusual. Yeah, I know. They, they, this is him missing a trick here, isn't it? As usual, let's take a look at how Lovecraft himself used the word Accursed. From At the Mountains of Madness... Less than a fortnight later, we left the last hint of polar land behind us and thanked heaven that we were clear of a haunted, accursed realm where life and death, space and time, have made black and blasphemous alliances in the unknown epochs since matter first writhed and swam on the planet's scarce-cooled crust. And from the rats in the walls. But there was plenty to engross us close at hand. For we had not gone far, before the searchlights showed us that accursed infinity of pits in which the rats had feasted, and whose sudden lack of replenishment had driven the ravenous rodent army, first to turn on the living herds of starving things, and then to burst forth from the priory in that historic orgy of devastation which the peasants will never forget. And finally, from the hound... Madness rides the star wind, claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from night-black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the baying of that dead, fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web wings circles closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable. And on to our main topic, pulp and purist play in Call of Cthulhu. Most people tend to peg Call of Cthulhu as being fitting into certain styles of play, particularly two styles of play. And I think Trail of Cthulhu was the first to put the tags on that said purist and pulp. Now, nice bit of alliteration, but I think it's 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 an adequate fit, I think. That there is definitely those stories which adhere more towards kind of the nihilistic end of original Lovecraftian style. Purist is trying to capture the mode of Lovecraft's original stories, where pulp is probably more towards well, this is going to be an arguing point already, um, the more gamer response to <laughs> trying to insert their characters into such a story. No, we'll, we'll go into this, I think, more as the discussion goes on. But personally, I think it's it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Most games I've played have fallen somewhere on the spectrum between the two. And it's a rare game that sits at either extreme. Yeah, it's not pigeonholed. It is very much a, a spectrum. But as, as are Lovecraft stories, really. I mean, I'd say mm. Herbert West is more towards the pulp end of, uh, of things. And the yeah. Dunwich Horror. Yeah. yeah, and possibly the horror Red Hook and um, the Lurking Fear. And let's not forget, where were his stories published? In pulp magazines. Exactly. <laughs> now, as we mentioned a moment ago, purist mode is probably what most people associate with Call of Cthulhu. I, I think as the discussion goes on, I'll do my damnedest to undermine that. But um, That doesn't sound like you at all, Scott. <laughs> 
but yeah, we associate with Lovecraft and obviously the stories that came in his wake, Call of Cthulhu, the games that that's inspired. We associate that combination of nihilism, cosmic horror, and just grim desperation, which typifies the purest mode. I think... You know, when you play those kind of games, though, that, that kind of very grim, dark game, which can be enjoyable, I think most role players have come from, you know, D&D &D and, and, and various games like that, which tend to have adventure and, and so on in them. And I'm not sure how much appetite there is for really purist, you know, if, if we're describing that as really kind of dark and gritty. I mean, that, that, I mean, you wrote one, Scott, that some people fed back that it was so grim that they didn't know that if they or anybody else would ever want to play it. I think yeah. when people sit down at their table, you know, whatever's written on the page is interpreted by A, the, the, the GM, and B, the players, you know, in that kind of group dynamic that we've discussed before. It takes a particular group, I think, to really drive towards that kind of grim, gritty realism of, of uh, the purest kind of mode. But it's not just that. It's the sense of doom as well. So you can write a Call of Cthulhu scenario that has no expectation that the player characters will survive, oh, they'll get through it with their sanity intact, or you know, that something else equally horrible won't happen to them. But... As soon as you get players involved with that, I know that there are certain people I've played with might sign up to play a, a you know, what they see as being a purist game. As soon as they engage with it, though, they'll be playing to win. They want their characters to survive. They want their characters to triumph. And as a result, you will never get that, that purist tone with them. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but it, it to me, I think typifies a... A contradiction of expectations that I've seen in a lot of Call of Cthulhu games. That, you know, there, there were a lot of the classic Call of Cthulhu scenarios I've, I've played where they were supposedly all about the horror, they were about characters making this desperate last stand to try to save something or save humanity. And, you know, in practice, you know, it's load up on the Tommy Guns and Dynamite, let's go monster hunting. Hmm. Tommy Gun is an investigator's best friend, to be fair. <laughs> How we survived Masks of Nyarlathotep with one of those. Well, and I think Masks of Nyarlathotep is a classic example of this. I, you know, I, I want to revisit this when we start talking about pulp, but I think Masks of Nyarlathotep is, is kind of bizarre in that respect, in that it is a pure pulp scenario that turns grim because, because of the mechanics in Call of Cthulhu, because of the fact that the investigators are so fragile that you know, they, they will die fairly regularly. But apart from that, I, I think it's a very pulpy, action-packed, you know, two-fisted game. Well, let, let's go back to, to the word purist and just define it a little close to what we mean. There's a lot of aspects to this. I mean, we can talk about grim, but is it just, you know, grimness? Is it that your character... I mean, to me, part of the purist thing is that you are playing a human character with all their failings... Yes, you might get a shotgun or whatever, but you're not, you don't have any powers beyond the normal human being. And added to that, when you press the go button on your character, if you're in that purist mode, you are by default almost on a downward spiral. Yes. Whereas in a game, in a more pulp game to contrast it, you're not starting off as a regular human. You've got special abilities. And also there's a, there's a level of acquisition in the game. You know, you're going to get things that are going to make you cooler. I, I think it's partly that. I, uh, that's one facet of it. I think 
for a purist game, there are a few other things. There's certainly the expectation that you're not getting out of this alive, or at least you're not getting out of this whole, that your characters will be changed in unpleasant ways by the experience. Mm-hmm. Not, uns- but, not unscathed as well. Is You can potentially yeah. get out alive, but it's at what cost? Yeah, that's what I mean exactly, by that downward yeah. spiral. You know, mm-hmm. once you get on it, it is, yeah, yeah. But I think a much more important aspect of that, which ties in with this, is that there should be some form of emotional engagement with that process. Mm. That um, the players have got to buy into that. They've got to be sort of, I, I think, playing out the tragedy or you know, the, the, the grimness of this character who is making this stand, who is, you know, whether it's for their personal survival or to save something or someone they care about, and is willing to sacrifice all for it. Mm-hmm. And I think unless there's that emotional engagement there, it then becomes something of an empty exercise. Mm -hmm. It has to have that kind of connect with it where you feel what the character's going through as well. Um, Part of when I try to build a purist game, I always keep thinking back to that quite iconic scene in The Thing where the power's just gone out, the, uh, the temperature's dropping, and he says, none of us are getting out of this thing alive. And it's just the look that all of the characters share amongst them at that point. That's kind of the, the essence of what I want to try and capture with mm. that. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy that, that that's unique to purists, though, because I think whatever game you're running, it's good to have some sort of emotional connection with your characters. Yes, you're yeah. engaging with a different aspect of it. There are aspects of pulp that you want to kind of, you know, get into. They're, they're kind of more perhaps typically light-hearted. I wasn't saying that it was unique to Purist. I was saying that Purist doesn't work without it. Mm. At least not for me. I don't know. I don't don't know if I'm convinced by that. Um, It has to have an impact. It certainly gives it more of a punch. It's Up until that point, there's a certain degree of disconnect. But that's just just an effective game, surely, if if, if there's more emotional kind of weight to it. I'm not sure that's... defining to to purists. It's it's not defining, but it's important to it. No, I'm not saying it's part of the definition. I'm saying that without it, purist doesn't work. Yeah, it's almost just pulp light at that point. In fact, it's pretty much halfway between the two. Well, it's mm. either that or you're just playing, you know, disposable characters and it's, you know, right, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll throw my professor at the problem until he goes splat and then I'll just roll up a new one and I'll throw him at the problem until he goes splat. Ne- next clone, please. Yeah. Well, I guess what we have to be aware of is this kind of di- dichotomy between, you know, pulp and purist and and very much recognise that it is very much a sliding scale yeah. and that's what we're going to put forward. And, yes, I guess... All these are factors. If you have them all stacked up, then it really pushes it up the purest end of that that scale. Yeah, so I'd, I'd agree with that, yeah. And sort of building on that, one thing that I would say is that I think purist games work best as one-shots. Mm-hmm. That I, You could probably do a purist campaign, but it would have to be a very slow burn thing. That you know, this is something we touched upon in the death episode a while back. That you know, if you just have lots of characters dying the whole time, then it becomes you know, it, it just becomes repetitive and dull. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, you know, I think if you if you have the exploration of this one character's journey, then that is a much more engaging thing, a much more important thing to that purist mode. What do we mean by the terms pulp and purist? I mean, the term pulp, where does it come from? It comes from the paper stock used for those kind of old um, pulp magazines and books and so on. But as we said, Lovecraft stories were, were in the pulps, but some of them were very, what we would call 
pulp, and some of them were very what we would call purist. Yeah, I mean, the pulps published all sorts of subject matter. So, yes, there, there is the two-fisted action that we now associate with pulp. There were detective stories, romance stories. Um, I mean, if you can think of a type of genre fiction, it was published in the pulps. So you're never going to... Yeah, if you publish a game and say it's pulp, you know, you get ten people, they're not going to agree on, you know, what is pulp? So is it... Well, it's it's isn't it heroes in jetpacks fighting talking gorillas atop giant zeppelins? Nah, nah, nah. It's Indiana Jones running away from a big rolling ball. I think Pulp Cthulhu deals with it fairly well. You know, you can scale it back or, or push it forward. Yeah. Um, you know, down the, down those lines. Certainly, when we each ran our playtests of the Two Headed Serpent, the Pulp campaign that we've we've written for Chaosium. We had wildly different groups who approached Pulp in very different ways. Uh, I, think, I think there's even a sidebar in there to that effect. And I think it's down, they, not only down to the groups, it's down to us as keepers um, that we bring a different kind of uh, mode of play that we foster ourselves as, as, as people. Um, so, you know, Matt, you seem to be more, you know, death rays in flying. I blame my players. I don't know <laughs> responsibility for this. <laughs> well, I blame you for letting them do whatever they want. <sighs> Crazy. <laughs> I'm just a liberal GM. That's my doubtful. I think that must be it. You almost let the players, you know, you almost let the players have some uh, Degree autonomy. Control. Yeah. 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 Whereas, you, madness? whereas you were very careful not to let your players have fun, Paul. Oh, oh I always make sure of that. <laughs> And you were somewhere in the middle, Scott? Apparently, yes. They had fun, you know, even though... Yeah, just not too much of it. Yeah, but it was grim fun. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Two things that add to the pulp feel to me. One is, it's not in the mechanics, it's not in the player characters, it's in the adversaries, I think. And there's a reason that Nazis typically feature in pulp films, you know, the the kind of Indiana Jones style of thing. Because we can all agree, I I would hope, they're the bad guys. And it's pretty black and white. And there's not many other real-world adversaries that you can kind of identify that everybody, you know, can be on board with. Um, but, you know, stick a swastika on it and we know where we are. So there's, with Pulp, there's that black and white kind of, those are the bad guys, the cultists are evil, we're here to save the world, go. With a purist game, I think more things can be more nuanced uh, you know, they can be uh, there can be more moral dilemmas. There can be more shades of grey. And I think there's also the expectation that in pulp you can solve your problems through violence. That if you can find the right bad guy and punch him in the face or shoot him in the head or something like that, everything's going to be okay. In purest games, you really you know the only person you're going to be able to shoot in the head to make things better is yourself, or the guy standing next to you. And that's very typical of Lovecraft. I mean, indeed, the quote you read out about the guy with a pistol in his hand mm. looking for oblivion. Yeah. The second thing I'd say that, that makes a, a difference, and I kind of uh, learned this whilst running Pulp Cthulhu, was the whole clue dispenser thing. You know, when I'm running traditional, uh, if, you, if you like, purist Call of Cthulhu, I'm fairly... Um, I'm fairly tight on the clues I give out and, you know, I kind of gear that back a bit. I remember weeks of waiting for a handout in Walker in the Waste. <laughs> weeks. <laughs> but with Pulp Cthulhu, it's like, or with a Pulp game, they don't want to be looking for clues. You just kind of lay them out for them. And if, if they're a bit... I mean, I can remember one instant... In, 
I can remember one incident when the player characters, I think they were a bit at a loss for what to do next. So I'll just have, you know, they were in the office block where the, the baddies operate or whatever, and I'll just have a secretary, you know, in the next cubicle doing her makeup, sort of saying, oh, where did I put those files for Mr. You know, bad guy that give it all away? <laughs> oh, I think I put them in the bottom drawer of the filing cabinet. You know, it's that kind of, and, you know, before I kill you, Mr. Bond, let me tell you my whole plan. It's so, that kind of approach just to being really, and it's quite a different mindset when you start running pulp stuff because there is that, if you're a, if you're a kind of trad Call of Cthulhu GM, I think there is that inbuilt kind of thing to all the players have got to work for these clues. But, you know, it's, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, you want to get the clues out there as quickly as possible so they can move on to the next fun bid. Yeah. It's like dialing subtlety down to one. <laughs> it is, it is, yeah. I mean, again, it's that sliding scale thing, but if you want to go all the way, then, yeah. And I think another element of pulp is that you've got liberty to bring a bit more humour in to relieve tension. Right, with purist games, you don't necessarily want to relieve the tension. You want to dial it up and dial it up and reach some kind of crisis point. But Well, there's maybe a, like, a really black humour that sort yeah. of breaks out just because of that tension that builds up, but... Yeah, definitely. With with the pulp, there's more humour, I'd say. Exactly, and and yeah, you want to you want to have that regular cycle of tension release, tension release, and yeah, humour is the natural way of doing that. To the extent that if somebody's killed in Pulp Cthulhu, a player character is is well is seemingly killed. You know, there's a mechanic whereby they can they can exercise something a limited resource to, to allow themselves to come back but part of the thing is they have to explain how they survived <laughs> and it's like oh my god we never thought we'd see you again oh well actually what <laughs> happened was dot 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 yeah it's funny last night just on a whim i found uh hudson hawk on netflix and i hadn't seen that in years and dear god is that a pulpy adventure film and there's a character who very very obviously dies fairly late on in the film and then just pops up in the next scene uh, explaining the improbable series of events as to how he managed to get out of that death trap and it is exactly that yeah exactly yeah. whereas i'd just go down to the big trouble in little china explanation how did you get up there it wasn't easy <laughs> That's it, and just leave it at that. <laughs> and now an overview of Pulp Cthulhu. This game has been a long time coming. Yeah, it sure has. I think it was first mentioned in 2001, so 15 years ago, that it's come to uh, take to reach actual print on paper that that yeah. coming soon title was very misleading <laughs> yeah there have been a few false starts along the way different teams of writers working on it but finally on the back of the seventh edition kickstarter there was a version that came together uh, and worked and is now a thing that people can play yeah the pdf's out and i think it's going to print didn't you say matt is that right yeah the there was a window whereby it was advertised on the Kickstarter comments page to say, look, if you've got any corrections you want to put in, then you have until X date to do it. And I believe that that was quite a long thread where they put um, pulled out, it's mainly spelling errors or formatting changes. Yeah, things but, like that. But it wrapped up at the end saying, right, this thread is now closed, the book has gone to print, thank you very much for your efforts, especially blah and blah, and then it it's effectively en route. It's probably still worth sending them in. I know Mike loves getting those. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, actually, I think he does appreciate getting them. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really good, the crowdsourcing um, editing that, that people do. 
So you were the one who suggested that that this come into the Kickstarter, weren't you, Paul? Well, that's what I recall. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, I was. Um, yeah, I kind of pushed for it to be in the Seventh Head Kickstarter um, as a as an add-on, and sure enough, yeah, it was there. And um, you know, Mike kind of picked it up and d- uh, developed it. I think we all did. We all have a hand in that. I mean, yeah. I wrote yeah. a part a, a, a part of it. I think I wrote a page. <laughs> well, there you go, Scott. And I provided one of the four scenarios in the back of the book. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite a substantial book. It's a, it's not a standalone game. It is a supplement for Call of Cthulhu. Uh, we've got 272 pages, full colour layout, uh, with plenty of art, including lots of pieces by my old friend, Jonathan Wyke. And yeah, this is going to be a hardcover. Um, from what we've seen of the layout, it looks absolutely beautiful uh, in PDF form, and and it's going to look even better in print. Yeah, it's Nick who's done the layout again, isn't it? Yes. And yeah, he has done a really good job. In the recent discussions on various forums that I've seen about uh, Pop Cthulhu, one thing that's come up a few times is people getting it confused with Astounding Adventures. Astounding Adventures is a BRP supplement that Chaosium put out a few years back, which covers vaguely similar ground. I mean, it's a a pulp game, a pulp adventure game, Uh, but it's not a Call of Cthulhu one. It it is just BRP. Yeah, it it complements the big gold book. That's what it does. And Pop Cthulhu, like I say, it, it occupies some of the same space as it, but it is very much a separate game. I think one of the most important differences, which sets the tone right from the outset, is the fact that player characters in Pop Cthulhu are not investigators. They're heroes. Investigators are soft and squishy and go well with ketchup. Heroes, they're tough little buggers. They are, yes. Heroes are so much harder to kill in in Pop Cthulhu. Twice as hard, one might say. (laughs) Well, it's not just that. But, I mean, we'll get into the mechanical bits about what makes them so tough, you know, in a few moments. But certainly, you know, when I was running uh, The Two-Headed Serpent, that is a tough campaign. Uh, You know, if if you ran it using normal Call of Cthulhu investigators, I'm sure it would be a meat grinder that makes masks of Nyarthotep look like cuddly kittens. I tried. Uh, you know, oh, sorry, no, that sounds unfair, but I had the gloves off the whole time. I did not do anything to try to soften the effect on the investigators. When there was something nasty I could throw it at them, I threw it at them with gusto. And I did not have any heroes survive until the... Uh, you didn't have them survive. <laughs> no, there's, there's a Freudian sleep. <laughs> I, and I did not have any heroes die until the very end scene. When you say die, that mechanic I referred to earlier allows you to kind of come back from death. Yes. Um, you know, not 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 infinitely, but... Um, you can escape I, death so many times. Yeah, you can escape death quite a few times. So I think you did have that, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly I, I felt very uh, free to take the gloves off to the degree that one time when I had some, um, some new characters or actually new players join the game... I had them playing adversaries and had all the other players sort of opened up, you know, fade up from black with all the existing player characters hung up by their ankles in an abattoir. And it was just like, you can take the gloves off because I just thought that'd be crazy. And it's just the kind of thing that would happen to Indiana Jones. And I was pretty confident, well, they're going to survive because they're heroes. I can just imagine have, um, seeing, because you ran most of Two Edged Serpent online, didn't you? Yes. I can just imagine sat outside of camera shot, uh, behind the, um, on the wall behind your computer screen, just in big capital letters engraved saying, kill them all! <laughs> and it just didn't have that effect. I've got that tattooed on the inside of my eyelids, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so what the voices tell you. <laughs> 
So pulp heroes have got a lot more hit points than Call of Cthulhu investigators. Uh, well, they have double the hit points for a start. And you also get rid of the idea of major wounds in this. Uh, so in order to, to actually kill a pulp hero, you, as opposed to just knocking them unconscious for hitting them down to zero hit points, you have to do so much damage. Yeah, in, in one big go. Or, you know, or have them taken away and killed, but that seems rather against the spirit of things. Yeah, it's it's pretty much being beaten up by a horde of ghouls isn't going to be um, too problematic for hero. Maybe having a dole land on you might be slightly more painful. And but what this means is that you can bring out the big guns during the campaign. There are all sorts of monsters in Call of Cthulhu, really cool monsters, that you may put one or two of in a campaign, maybe for a big climactic scene. You can throw those in all over the place in Pulp Cthulhu. Yeah. An army of Shoggoths rather than just one. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> certainly, you know, you can make use of the Gug and uh, similar things. Because, mm -hmm. like Scott says, you know, what can you do with those normally? You can do something with them, but people just have to hide and run away. And again, like dolls, the only time I ever mem uh, remember someone mentioning them that they used in a game. Um, it was somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but said, uh, said player had had their group get together an artillery gun. Um, this thing was stuck in a cave and they just perpetually fired shells at it. Even then, that's a rare and somewhat tongue-in-cheek appearance. <laughs> I, I ran a one-shot at some stage where uh, Nialathotep made an appearance. And he was in human form. There was a player character who shot him in the head with a forty-five caliber pistol and killed him. So, of course, he then erupts in a monstrous form. The hero goes insane at this stage, and we will come on to, in a moment, what exactly that entails. But uh, he, as a result, became a bit harder to kill and a bit harder to hit. And he spent the next few rounds, while everyone else ran away, dancing around Nyarlathotep with his forty-five pistol, just avoiding being splattered until he took Nyarlathotep down with a handgun. <laughs> You can see Paul shaking his head going, that shouldn't happen. <laughs> At least Matt used the death ray. I mean, come on. <laughs> Lead poisoning for an elder god. What the hell? So let's have a look at heroes. Well, how do you create a hero? You start off with an archetype. So you pick something like Rogue, Thrill Seeker, Egghead, Femme Fatale, and so on, that, that just kind of gives you an, an overarching picture of what your character is like. And then onto that, you bolt some powers, don't you? Some yes. talents, pulp talents. So pulp talents are things like the ability to use weird science, having psychic abilities, um, you know, being able to do trick shots with your handgun. Kill gods um, with it. So, <laughs> um, I, or, you know, more minor things like having an iron liver so you can drink everyone else mm. under the table. Um, or, there's, or, there's also good things for augment um, normal skills like getting bonus dice on um, spot hidden was one that was quite yes. prevalent in my group or being really good at sneaking. Yeah, and, and these things are absolutely fantastic because... They, they not only give your characters ways of being tougher and more interesting, but they, they also you know, further solidify niche, niche protection to some extent. So you know, your character is then you know, fantastically good at sneaking, I mean, superhumanly good at sneaking. So yeah, you, 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 your character is then the scout. Yeah, or your guy's the science guy, and he'll be able yeah. to figure out all these weird science fiction devices. Uh, so each character kind of gets the thing they're good at. So they're much more durable than regular investigators and they've got more dimensions to them in terms of their abilities. 
that take them beyond the, the normal human. On top of that, they still have their ordinary occupation as well. The archetype is what fits them more into the pulp dynamic, whereas occupation still grounds them in reality to a degree. It shows what skill bases they've had, very much like a regular occupation works. So the two of them can complement each other to some extent, or they could be some completely unexpected combination. Yeah, the haberdasher that's gone out to save the world. (laughs) Fucking haberdashers. So there's a few new occupations in, in Pop Cthulhu which are perhaps a bit more pulpy than some of the ones in the main role book. I think these are all ones that are new to Pop Cthulhu, so you know, do correct me if I'm wrong. But I mean, things like Big Game Hunter, Bounty Hunter, Cult Leader, Hitman, Spy, or Yogi. And of course, luck features quite heavily in this game. So luck is your kind of um, power-up. It's your points, your resource that you can spend. Because some of these pulp talents... They're not working all the time. You have to spend some luck points to sort of trigger them off. And equally, that that thing we've talked about a few times about saving yourself from death, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, and the guys will correct me on this if I'm wrong, I think it was you need at least 30 points of luck in your pool remaining. And if you've got that and you're killed in play, then you can, you know tell how you come back from death and maybe in the next scene you pop up um, you know, on a, on a boat from China or something and suddenly you're there and you say how you didn't die. That's at the cost of spending all of your luck to do yes. so. Uh, but if, you're, if you fall below that 30 luck and you end up in that situation and you're killed, then you, know, you are dead. Because sometimes pulp heroes do die. <laughs> you can use luck for things like negating or shaking off damage as well, which... It really makes a huge difference in play. It means, you know, otherwise your characters end up getting knocked out a lot. They spend a lot of time on zero hit points and getting carried around by the rest of the team. All right, there is one player from my playtest, John Ruddy. Uh, <laughs> his character was fantastic in The Two-Headed Serpent because he would always throw himself in danger. And as a result... He got the shit kicked out of him constantly. He spent more time on zero hit points than any other level of hit points. And <laughs> as a result, we ended up, I think, pretty much rewriting most of the damage and healing rules just to cater for John's character. And most of those ended up, because, because Mike was one of the playtesters as well, most of those ended up being you know, part of the rules in Pop Cthulhu. So... If your character is better at shaking off damage or surviving what should be something, you know, hideously and show-stopping, you have John Ruddy to thank for that. <laughs> it is his sacrifice that brought you it. <laughs> Thinking of other examples a bit like that, um, one of the other nice uh, features I found in there, there's still a few, a, a few optional rules, like yeah. the... The optional rule for luck in the core book is now pretty much a mandatory rule in um, Pulp Cthulhu. But even so, there are still a few optional rules in there. One of the nice ones that came out of the playtesting I did was the 01 rule. That if you roll 01, then something good happens to you. Maybe you get plus um, plus damage, you get maybe a, a subsequent bonus to your next um, next rule. So that, that was quite a nice one. That came from, I think it was Jessica Walters that one came from. <laughs> And yeah, your characters get a lot more luck as well. As they are entirely powered by luck, you burn through a lot more of it. So your characters start with more and they earn more every session. Another feature that's new to Polk Thulu are insane talents. This is a bit I worked on. It's whereby when you go insane, and this is something I thought about you know, when working on 7th Ed, is that Herbert West reanimator type character in which he's a doctor 
But how did he get these weird talents to bring people back from the dead? I figure he's got them from, you know, episodes of insanity, really, and, and his insights into the mythos and the kind of mix-up of the two have augmented his, his, uh, his skills. The whole idea of insane talents is that when you do go insane, as is quite likely in Pop Cthulhu, because as we've said, mm -hmm. you're up against bigger threats. So those tend to carry bigger um, sanity penalties as well. So when you do go insane, you can roll on a chart and develop certain talents, but such things as insane language, insane recall, insane brutality. Insane brutality was one that I can recall um, in one of my games. I think that's such that when you kind of turn that on, you become more effective at fighting, but you can't stop fighting until you are restrained or talked out of it by your companions. Or until you've defeated your opponent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, but until then, you roll damage twice and you take the better of the two results. Mm. Um, yeah, I remember insane language coming in quite a lot when, when we were playtesting. There were a number of times when the heroes were encountering non-human entities and they, they'd be tipped over into madness and then you know one of them would get the insane languages ability and they'd suddenly be able to communicate with these entities. Without knowing how. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had a few in uh, my run where they'd all rolled the same one for an augmented skill, which is where, this is as Paul was mentioning about, how did Herbert West gain his ability to create the reanimator fluid? How did Crawford Tillinghast get his ability to create the resonator? That certain skills were augmented, so they had a almost supernatural capability. Um, one of the players had the ability that effectively their insane dodge was, I'm going to leap through a right angle and come out of another right angle, a la Hound, Hound of Tinderloss style. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> and that sort of leads us on to weird science. And weird science is a big part of Pop Cthulhu. I mean, we touched upon the fact earlier that Matt's uh, players ended up having a death ray and just using it on everything that moved. They started with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't just start with it, but they also augmented it as they went on, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they? yeah. You got yeah. bolt-ons, it became a field artillery weapon by the end of it. The death ray mark two. <laughs> <laughs> Characters can have all sorts of other things like jetpacks and, and you know, really weird technology like mobile phones. That'll never catch on. How very 30s. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, also touches on another interesting aspect of this, which is um, somewhat out-of-place technology. I like the fact that pulp heroes have got a computer use skill. Uh, because there's the idea that mad scientists may have actually created thinking machines. And certainly, yeah, I've played one game where computer use actually ended up being very important. And the other very pulpy thing that comes into this is the use of magic and psychic powers. So characters can start out with psychic abilities. Uh, they, there's a limited list of them, but I mean, they're fairly cool things. And, you know, again, I've seen these used to quite good effect in, in games that I've run. Um, <laughs> one aspect, I suppose, is that the psychic, because you know, he or she may end up seeing visions of uh, you know, the truth behind things, is probably a lot more likely to end up sanity blasted than any of the other characters. I remember the divination power had a sand hit from, from memory. Yeah. So being able to look into that future and see, is this really a good course of action? Ah, Maybe not. Yes. Or, I've just picked up this magic artefact. Let, let me just try to work out what its history is. Oh, psychometry, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And there's obviously still all the same magic as you'd find in Call of Cthulhu. Potentially uh, a bit easier to learn some of the spells. There's some options in there for learning them a bit faster. Yeah, and you can read the books quicker and so on. Yeah. yeah. And let me skim through the Necronomicon in a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> So what else can you expect to find in Pulp Cthulhu? You'll find a history of the pulps. And there's also advice about running pulp games. There's a lot of setting information about the 1930s. And this is perhaps not quite as detailed as the 20 setting information you'd find in the Investigator Handbook, but it's more than enough to actually you know, get a feel for it. There's a selection of pulp villains to get you started, to get your brain going, and you can adapt to use in your own games. There's also some more examples of mad science devices, so more death weight per square inch, never a bad thing. <laughs> there is also a uh, fairly comprehensive price list and weapons list, you know, as you'd expect in any Call of Cthulhu publication. A bibliography. And also four sizable scenarios, in fact, to the point where they take up half the page count in the book, pretty much. Yeah, so what are the four scenarios in there, Matt? Because you're, you're better versed in them than we are. You wrote one of them, didn't you, Matt? Yeah. I did, yeah. Yes. There's the Disintegrator by Alan Bly, who also uh, wrote the Crimson Letters scenario in the core book, followed by my contribution, Waiting for the Hurricane, Pandora's Box by Glyn White, yep. and there's also A Slow Boat to China by Dan Kramer. AKA Keeper Dan of the Miskatonic University podcast. Go Dan. I, I might be visiting Dan in the summer in Sioux Falls. Oh, hopefully. cool. Yeah. Huh? And to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about Pulp Cthulhu? So one of the things that differentiates Pulp Cthulhu from Call of Cthulhu is the fact that it's set in the 1930s. And this this all struck me as being quite interesting, that Pulp Cthulhu is, is much more the optimistic, two-fisted, action-packed version of it. But the 1930s were inherently a grimmer, more pessimistic time. You know, it, it all came during the Great Depression. You know, the, the, the golden age of the 1920s had just crashed, you know, and burnt, and, and people were in poverty. This exploded out into imagination escapism. Uh, this is very much at the core of Pulp Cthulhu. So do you think that's when Pulp really, you know, Pulp as a a fiction genre really boomed in the 30s? Uh, No, I mean, the Pulp's been around since, oh gosh, the 1910s. So, I mean, is it just that the 1920s are kind of spoken for, so we move on to the 1930s then? I thought thought when I looked at it that it's more of a, um, an inverse scale, that the better the world appears in the 20s, the more horrific your game is. The worse the world appears in the 1930s, the more chance of survival and success you have. But it does seem to work yeah. out that way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Having played both versions, traditional Call of Cthulhu and Pop Cthulhu, you know, personally, which do each of us prefer? I, I really enjoy running pulp games, but I think my natural tendency would be more to slide towards more graphic horror and more the darker end of the scale, so I'd probably go towards purists more often. But that's not to say that I don't like pop. I do really enjoy what it does, but it runs for very specific types of games. I am very happy with both. Um, I, I would have thought by temperament I'd probably gravitate more towards the purist mode. But on the other hand, you know, having run a lot of pulp now and having run pulp games in the past, I really enjoy the action-adventure approach. I, I enjoy... That that feeling of being able to escalate threat 
uh, and throw the heroes into increasingly worse situations and know that it's going to be fun for the players to find creative ways to get out of that. That is one of my great joys as a GM. And, you know, Pop Cthulhu really scratches that itch for me. You become numb to TPKs, that's what you're saying. You're going soft, aren't you, Scott? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I found it a very kind of, uh, you know, enjoyable game to run, I have to say. Uh, Pop Cthulhu, I mean. Yeah, it was kind of a refreshing change, really. It was, it was very... You know, all, all the things that you almost can't do in Call of Cthulhu, you could do in that one. Um, Unleash the gug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun. I don't, you know, I, I think I'll probably find myself playing Call of Cthulhu more, but I'd certainly look to play Pulk Cthulhu sometimes. And I think one thing that Pop Cthulhu really fixed for me is, yeah, you know, I've been quite vocal before about having problems with Call of Cthulhu in a campaign mode. In that you you do end up getting through a lot of characters, you get that disconnect as characters die the whole time. And I found Pop Cthulhu really fixed that for me. That it it created this very action-packed uh, but still horrific campaign, but it had the continuity of the same characters going through exploring it all. And that made it feel, I don't know, much more like a campaign to me. So you're saying you're going to run Masters of the After the Tap has a pulp campaign now? I, if I were ever to run Masks again, I would definitely use Pulp Cthulhu for it. You know, Masks for me has always been a pulp campaign. Uh, it, it is all about, you know, action. It is about stopping globe-spanning conspiracies. It's about uh, weird mastermind villains. It's pure kind of pulp tropes. But the reason it's got a reputation for being so horrific and so grim is because as soon as you attach the Call of Cthulhu rules to it, then, yeah, these fragile little investigators go into it, and, yeah, it's just splat, 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 next investigator, please, splat. It turns it into something else. I think masks of Nalathotep, people either gear up to run it with Polk Cthulhu, you're going to have to sort of use a different rule set and, and adapt the game to it. But I think most people have geared it down now, I've played it twice now, well, first half a long time ago and then and the full thing um, with yourself, Matt, mm-hmm. uh, at the Milton Keynes Club. And there wasn't a great attrition rate of player characters in it, really, no, because the, the GMs kind of geared it down. I think there um, are a couple of instances where some people got really unlucky, like their first role being the spot hidden and then being eaten by the Shoggoth afterwards. But I think we averaged maybe two characters each, yeah, some, somewhere so. in that region. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah, when I ran it, yeah, that was two characters each per session. <laughs> so you were just doing roll up, quick die, right? Next character, Pretty roll much. up, quick die. No. <laughs> Whatever we've said about our personal preferences, and it does seem to be very much, you know, we both like, you know, both flavors really. I think we can't stress enough how much of a different game it is. Although it's still mm. called, well, it's not called Call of Cthulhu, but it still comes under the Call of Cthulhu banner. It really is. It's not just like. Call of Cthulhu in a different period. It is to play and to run. It is a wholly different game. Oh, completely, yes. Yeah, it's very much the. I'd say the balance of power shifts very much more to the players in that in that case. But it, it's it's not just that. I mean, Call of Cthulhu is this carefully paced investigative game where the players if they want their investigators to survive, make sensible decisions, plan things out, get all the evidence ahead of time, proceed with caution. Pop Cthulhu is not that game at all. No, they... this, yeah, this is, you know, oh, there's danger, let's throw ourselves into it and see what happens. 
And from a keeper point of view, I found when we were working on Two-Headed Serpent that I'd, I'd be sort of thinking about next week's session and I'd be thinking, okay, well, I'm going to do this and this, but what's the big set piece in this mm. part of the of the campaign? You know, it needs a... a so you kind of think in big combats or big... Uh, not necessarily combats, it might be a big chase scene or whatever, but some big action scene really that, that, that it sort of drives towards. And those seem to me to be very important aspects of the game, whereas in a regular Call of Cthulhu game, yeah, you might have those, but not necessarily at all. And I think one of the things that really appealed to me about that was I've played other very action-oriented RPGs where when you get these big action scenes, they do tend to drag because of the mechanics. You get very in-depth mechanics with lots of tactical choices. And with Call of Cthulhu and and Pulp Cthulhu, they're much simpler than that. And, And particularly... You know, with a rather streamlined version of combat that you get with 7th edition, the fights, they may have been big, high-stakes, action-packed things, but they didn't outstay their welcome. Yeah, which is definitely a major plus for me. I don't like long combat. You don't like short combat, Matt. That too. (laughs) But, But they do make for interesting combats in Pulp. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, it's been a little while since we've thanked any Patreon backers. And this isn't because people haven't been backing us. This is because we put out a couple of special episodes uh, which were recorded a long time ago. So uh, we have a bit of a backlog to get through, and we are deeply grateful to each and every one of you. Uh, thank you ever so much. As I've mentioned before, you know the the money that you give to us has paid for our hosting costs, has paid for the bandwidth costs to get the the uh, media files themselves out to you. Uh, they've paid for the new equipment that's improved our sound quality a fair bit, and we do have some ideas uh, for some other interesting things we can do coming up. But the first person we have to say a big thanks to is Tiffany Sanderson. I wonder who that might be. <laughs> Did you know about this, Matt? I think she looked at the she looked at the Patreon page and went, "You've been at one eight nine for a little while. I want a round figure." <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Tiffany. Yes, thank you very much, Tiff. Indeed, thank you, love. <laughs> if it's not apparent to you as a listener. No reason it should be. Tiffany is Matt's better half. I you say better half there. <laughs> <laughs> That's not setting the bar very high, is it, Matt? <laughs> oh, I resemble that remark. <laughs> Thanks to Tom Clare. Indeed, thank you very much, Tom. Yes, thank you, Tom. And we're going to have another try at pronouncing your name right because uh, Ron... I believe it's Ron Fricky has has upped his pledge level, and so we're going to thank you again. And you know, if we screw your name up again here, just just up your pledge level again, and we'll try to get it right <laughs> when we sing it. <laughs> Seems like a good incentive. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ron. Yes, thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Cheers. Cheers. And now we move into the singing. Oh God, dear God, the singing. When I say singing, I'm being a bit charitable about our abilities here. But what we try to do... <laughs> you're mis-selling it is what you're selling it. Cacophony's more apt. <laughs> yes, but 
But this was because someone had a, the bright idea to offer a backer reward level whereby we literally sing our thanks to the backer. If looks so, could kill while you're looking at Paul I'm full right of now. ideas. <laughs> <laughs> you're full of something. <laughs> and now we're going to sing our thanks to new backer Jörg Sterner. Thank you. Thank you. And before we leave you, let's return to our relatively new regular segment. Ask a Jackson. This is wherein our listeners found themselves in desperate situations, call upon our aid as the channels of the uh, earthly vessels of Jackson Elias to ask for some help and guidance in these troubling times. Yes, we have no wisdom of our own to offer, but we are able to reach beyond the veil and grasp hold of Jackson's wisdom and, and drag it kicking and screaming into the earthly realm. Because when you're in need, who else are you going to call? Our question this episode comes from listener Patrick Sandoval. Dear earthly vessels of Mr Elias, I have contacted you earlier and my situation has worsened. Having been approached by a user of this mysterious ACLO, I have decided to stonewall any overtures into this frightening subject, which was for the best, as the acquaintance had late one night managed to melt his house down to its foundation. I did something then that I have begun to regret. I contacted the authorities. I am now being shadowed by mysterious vehicles while in traffic, a new stern colleague has suddenly appeared at work, and I am fairly certain that my dog has been replaced. I like to think of myself as a patriot, and I will gladly help out with any security concerns my country might have, but the questions from my new and intense workmate have become quite disturbing and outright esoteric. I have begun to fear that this is more than a mere police investigation. My question is... How do you know if the authorities involved are actually your country's best and brightest, and not other, perhaps, foreign agents? 
your proud countryman, P. Well, I think he identified where he went wrong in the first place. Never call the police. Never. I keep trying to warn people. I keep trying to warn people. Yeah, just look what happened. Yeah, it turns your dog into and turns your poodle into a Rottweiler overnight. <laughs> well, I, actually, I was particularly drawn to the bit about his dog being replaced because I understand that for reasons of security, you can't give us too many details there, Patrick. But the the images that conjured in my mind were everything from you know someone having summoned a hound of Tinderloss and sent it to lurk around your house to. A, a cultist in a fur robe on all fours, you know, sitting in your kitchen every now and then going, woof. No, I, I'm thinking a bit more of a, if I may uh, use the phrase, a, a canine capgrass syndrome, where the dog <laughs> looks exactly the same and behaves exactly the same, just he thinks it's been replaced. But beyond his indiscretion of calling the police, you know, what, what advice can Jackson offer? I think there's always a mantra that I know I certainly live uh, live my life by, and I think Jackson did the same thing. When you see someone dodgy in another vehicle, you treat every other driver on the road as an enemy combatant, and you play Carmageddon Vlarp. That's what you do. When it comes to dealing with the authorities, if you don't know if they're following you or not, this puts me in mind of Philip K. Dick. And when, in his somewhat paranoid state... I think in the 70s, he didn't. He, he felt like the FBI or the CIA were kind of tracking his every move. So he would write letters to them. And how would you get these letters to them? Well, obviously, you'd put them in the trash. Because he wins either way. Because either <laughs> they take them out of the trash and read them and they get the letters, or they just disappear in the trash. And actually, Philip K. Dick was being watched by the FBI, so... He was right all along! Yeah. <laughs> so just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Exactly. Paranoia is a state of being. Well, I think dispensing those pearls of wisdom just about wraps things up for tonight, folks. Yeah, I think so. If you haven't already got a copy of Pop Cthulhu, I would encourage you to go and get one. It's a fun game. Yeah, it took a long, long time to get here, but I think it was worth the wait. Indeed. Well, it's a two-fisted goodbye from me. It's a thrill-seeking cheerio from me. And it's a death ray tote in farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com You were saying. (laughs) 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 Comedy fucking gold. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny we've got video recording.